As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. You don't really make your money when you buy. You establish a baseline profit to market averages. You actually make your money when you operate you sell. And if you can operate well, you can make money in any market. As a loyal best ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Chad Doty. How you doing, Chad? I am excellent. How are you? I am excellent as well. Nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Chad. He is the CEO of 37th Parallel Properties. He's got 12 years of multifamily real estate investing experience and 10 years of management consulting experience. They've closed on approximately $300 million in real estate transactions based in Richmond, Virginia. You can learn more about their company at their website, which is in the show notes page. So with that being said, Chad, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, you bet. Background, I didn't grow up as a real estate investor. I was a business operations guy. I got dropped into companies to make them run better. But as my wife, I got a call when I was mid-30s when our son was being born and I was four hours away. And I'm like, I'm going to be a road warrior. And I'm getting a call about my son arriving and I need to fix this. So I wanted to find better solutions where I wasn't trading time for money. So took that business skill set and looked for ways to create passive legacy level income. And that sort of led down the path of, okay, let's do commercial real estate. Let's do multifamily. Let's do B-grade multifamily. Let's focus on the best markets for B-grade multifamily. And it kind of all came from there. So about 14 people been in business since 2008, 2009. And total transaction volumes around 380 million and currently still running 100% profitability rate. Did you initially have the B-class properties and the other things that you described at the beginning, or has that evolved to what you purchase now? It was from the beginning. 
what we looked at is we didn't grow up in it. It was okay. We want the characteristics of as recession proof as possible, as evergreen as possible, because nothing's ultimately fully evergreen. Nothing's ultimately risk proof, but how do you take out as many of the risks as you can? And multifamily had the best long-term risk reward profile of any real estate asset class and was a hard asset tax advantaged evergreen. It's food and shelter. So we picked it based on the data. And since we're, sort of business deconstruction and improvement experts, we were able to go through that process and kind of said, okay, let's play here and just get good at it. So it started from the beginning. And how do you define B-class properties and why did you choose B-class? You'll hear B, you'll hear workforce. It just all depends on the resident profile you want to get good at serving. And for us, that is the blue collar, light blue collar. They're making anywhere from median household income from 45 to 85,000 a year. Median household income in the U.S. is like 57. So you're serving the meat of the bell curve. It's the largest group of the U.S. population. So that is how we define it. And we're typically buying assets that are built between 1982 and early 2000. So B minus A minus. And why that age? They provide a level. Basically, the box is already there, meaning that HVAC systems, the plumbing, all that stuff is today normal. There's nothing really that's changed materially in that. You walk in, you've got a living room, you've got a kitchen, you've got bedrooms and bathrooms. But you can buy at 30 cents to 50 cents of construction cost, add another $5,000 to $10,000 door and get a really, really good product. So the rental improvement range is far better in B-grade multifamily and the resident base is far more insulated from economic shocks than let's say tip of the sphere A or credit restricted C. With properties that were built before 1982, have you purchased any? And if so, what did you notice with those in particular? In 82 is sort of a soft number. The hard number is really 1979, 1980, because then we're primarily missing all the lead and all the asbestos risk. That said, they're phenomenal assets that are B plus A minus assets, trophy assets in the beach built in the 1950s, but they've gone through some level of remediation. We don't buy coastal market trophy asset stuff. So it lets us avoid that risk. And generally you're going to have better roof slope structures and better envelopes with some of the stuff built after that time frame. So that's kind of why we avoid it. What's been a challenging property that you worked through and what aspects of it was challenging? We bought a deal in Houston that backed up to a bayou and maybe a fifth of the property was 100-year floodplain. And we dealt with some issues on Hurricane Harvey. While it was insured, we had business interruption insurance and all that, it's actually going to come out better economically in the long run. Dealing with a 500-year storm is no fun. So it's one of those things where you think you're fine, but then just nature happens. We don't buy stuff on the coast. And this one we thought was insulated, but obviously stuff happened. And 36 of the 104 units got down by Hurricane Harvey. So that's been a process. Ultimately, because of the insurance profile, it'll end up well, but it's a lot of brain damage having to go through that process. What part of the brain damage component was most challenging? Anyone who has never dealt with commercial corporate insurances, there's all of the reviews and assessments you have to go through. And the adjuster's job is for the insurance side is to delay and or minimize payment structures as much as they can to manage the insurance base of the carrier. 
So dealing with that, and especially with the co-insurance in the back end, it takes so much longer than it needs to from the outside looking in. So if you haven't gone through that before, it can be a little bit of a shock. It just takes time and persistence just doggedly going through the process. Luckily, we've got a phenomenal asset manager that had had multiple years with equity multifamily that was able to take that. But it's something that uh, if you're not prepared for it, it can be interesting. You said it takes longer than it should. Approximately how long does it take? We would think it would have been a 60 to 75 day process from analysis to claim. And it took closer to six months. And you've got business interruption insurance that will recover that lost time and money, but you don't get it till the end. So every extra delay you get pushes back out when you get to restart distributions for your client. And then with 36 of 104 units being flooded in this case, do you have an operating budget that you dip into to just operate the property in the meantime, or do you do capital calls or how do you approach that? We had the reserve balance to deal with it. Every single deal, and that's a good part of our philosophy, is we're more about minimizing risk, batting percentage versus slugging percentage. So every single deal we carry has a six-month mortgage reserve, and we also look to raise the capital improvement stack for the first five years anyway. So we had the reserve load to deal with, and all of our assets carry it. If you don't have to, you don't want to dip into it so far, then then have to recover it later. But we didn't have the cash call that deal. And then with the raising the capital improvement stack for the first five years, that leads me to believe that your deals are projected to be longer than five years. Is that the case? Yeah. We're a long-term holder of cash-producing assets. Our investors are looking for a consistent income stream that's highly tax-advantaged with equity growth along the way. So for us, you can actually increase your IRR by deferring capital until you need it, but it's a hassle factor for the client. Okay, we have a capital call based on the commitments to start renovations, and you've got to then tap people. So you got to herd cats consistently through the deal. In this way, we raise it all up front. It lowers the return a little bit, but in the long run, it's a better product, we believe, for a client. So approximately how long are the holds projected to be? Oh, yeah, sorry. We'll hold as long as it's performing. So from a portfolio perspective right now, we're holding $250 million, but at one time we've had north of that and we'll prune either when we get an outsized offer that's well north of projections or if we see the market slowing down in ways that we don't think it'll keep the NOI growth that we need. What's something that you've done to evolve your business from when you started it to today? We're always fine-tuning our asset management we try to be very closed loop about it. When we make a choice, how did that end up with returns? How did that compare to projections? How do we get better next time? So we're constantly going through that Kaizen process, that constant never-ending improvement. So that's evolved just step-by-step with every deal. And as cap rates compress, and as interest rates kind of nudge up, on some of our biggest evolutions have been in our capital structuring and how we raise and converting from friends and family 506B offerings that can't advertise to 506C accredited only can advertise with having a registered rep and being able to really, really push the envelope. And we went from buying 25 million in assets three years ago to 50 million. Now this year we're going to do 100 million. And with that growth, I'm sure that you get the question, if not frequently, then a good amount. The market is coming up for a correction. 
why are you buying right now? And what's your response to that? No, it's a great question. When you ever see the market, there's no national real estate market. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's all local. And what that said, interest rates are national. So part of it is, but not all of it. So it really is, what's the demographic story of where you're going to play? and What happens when economics turn? And if you look at buying now, you can still get good pricing. It's compressed, but if you can still create value in those deals, you're still getting double digit returns with consistent cash flow on the assets if you know what you're doing. So why not buy? Is there less of a spike on the going in price? Sure. But philosophically, everyone's heard the term that you make your money when you buy. Mm -hmm. And we think that's a half truth or it's proven out that way to us. You don't really make your money when you buy. You establish a baseline profit to market averages. You actually make your money when you operate and you sell. And if you can operate well, you can make money in any market cycle. Yep. Completely agree. You mentioned earlier, you all have made decisions and you're constantly focused on never-ending improvement and you look at the cause and effect of what resulted in a profit or loss or what allowed you to make more or less money. What are some tactical things for some of the best ever listeners who are apartment owners on perhaps a smaller scale? Maybe they got a 100 unit or 150 unit. What are some tactical things that you've seen with your portfolio that they could implement to help their apartment perform better? I think we were slow adopters of revenue management, so LRO, and using it to ride with the market. And in every single deal we implemented it on, it improved our revenue pretty much within the first two months. And they're good enough now where even smaller players can get access to it. So we were a slow adopter to that because you think that the resident doesn't like not knowing what the pricing is going to be on a daily basis, but the market's moving there anyway. So get out of your way and look at best practices of companies bigger than you and don't be afraid to adopt them regardless of your size. Because your resident base doesn't know you're a small player compared to Camden or Graystar or whoever. They just know they might want to live there. So understand the experience of other players and model those. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. This is not a cutting edge business. It's primarily a blocking and tackling service business. How much does LRO cost? It can vary between three and five bucks a door per month. But that's it. But if you get 10 to 20 or north of that, it pays for itself pretty much instantly. It sounds like you do value-add deals. Does it make sense during the first 12 months to have that in place, or is that in place after you do the renovations? You absolutely put it in place because what you're doing is you're not improving all the assets at once. What you're doing is you're, you create a model. There's a million ways to do this. The way we do it is you first understand what spec you want to hit in terms of the amenities of the asset, the unit amenities, and where you expect to peg that rent compared to your comps within three to five miles. That's just math and observation and data collection. But then when you go to put your model together, that model then will be, okay, I want to own this part. And then you're going to test how that market sells with a combination of LRO, how that model sells with a combination of LRO and the marketplace. Then you'll start to renovate against that spec and adjust. So you want to have LRO on, while you're starting your first wave of renovations to let you understand how you're doing. You mentioned earlier identifying what the large companies are doing and then you know, doing aspects of what they do or modeling after what they do. And that's why I'm glad we're interviewing you right now. So what are some additional things that you all do 
that could be modeled by an owner who has on a smaller scale properties but are still apartment investors? I think when we started, I did a six-unit building, then a 12-unit building, then partnered up with another guy, then we did 112. And then sort of we'd been at that level since 09. When we first started, though, we would abdicate, and I say abdicate as a negative term, construction management and renovation management to the property management firm. Most people at this scale, they'll self-manage and it'll be a job, or they'll have third-party property management and then you're asset managing them. But there's actually three roles in every deal. There's asset management, which is controlling strategy, property management, day-to-day blocking and tackling, and construction management, which is what are you doing with the value add piece, the bulk renovations, the contracts that, that manage the asset. And most property managers are not very good at construction and contract management. So find ways to outsource that sooner rather than later or partner up or take it yourself because you'll get more bang for your buck and you'll get more of what you want. Because getting in the day-to-day of how they lease and how they rent, they know that stuff better than you do. But the construction management side, renovation side, more times than not, they don't. From a team standpoint, you mentioned you had 14 employees. Is that correct? Correct. How do you structure your team? We basically have acquisitions and asset management, which is driven by my business partner and co-owner. And then that's got three staff. And then we have sales and marketing, which is basically lead gen and education. And then whenever we have new deals, the raise process with those deals, that's three people. Then we have basically shared services, which is client communications, office manager, fractional controller, and a few other admin folks. If you were to start another company from scratch, but does the same thing, how would you prioritize the hiring for which comes first? It depends because the answer is we're big believers in, there's a book called The Goal by Eli Goldratt, and it's about bottleneck management. And the best thing you can do is just optimize throughput is find the weak link. So it all depends on what you don't have. When we started, I'm an operations guy. I wasn't a rainmaker capital development guy. So we sell by being good at what we do. So our weak link early was capital development. But as you start to get a track record and people start calling you, then capital development gets a little lighter and you need to scale your acquisition. So I don't think the answer is one or the other. It's what is your gap and solve for that gap. Most business ownership is just solving for a weak link. Yeah, it's really interesting. Based on your experience as an entrepreneur and real estate investor, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I touched on it briefly, but there's a fantastic book. It's an old book. My dad gave it to me. I'm mid-40s. And it's called Winning the Loser's Game. And it's about tennis pros. And that tennis pros, the best tennis pros don't hit the most aces. They make the fewest mistakes. Same thing with Jack Nicholas. It's not that he would have the longest drive. He would just have most fairways in regulation. He, he never really made any errors. If same thing in investing. If you look at people who they might make, hey, I had a 300% return on this deal, but then they have a deal that does nothing or gives back. Find a way to minimize your risk in every single action that you take so that the process you build around that business is wrapped around that risk mitigation. It makes things so much easier because then you can be aggressively conservative, meaning that you will aggressively buy every conservative deal you can. And it puts success on autopilot because then you're not really worrying so much about what about this and what about that. You've taken care of that in the way you architect deals. And then the rest of it really is how do you then get bigger? What's the next weak link you have? That has served us really well. 
from an underwriting standpoint, what do you make sure is in place to have that risk mitigated as much as possible? The risk mitigation starts before underwriting. For us, it's the two things that we need before we even think about the deal is we have to have a market MSA, basically MSA submarket neighborhood that we know in our bones, we'd put our grandma's last $100,000 in. So there's population growth, components of population growth, employment growth, components of employment. There's easily 25 odd metrics we go through and say, okay, is this the kind of client or market that will serve our client? Then we find the best property management in that type of client service business. So B grade operator versus A grade operator. Then and only then do we look at deals. Because then if you've done that, you've taken out the two biggest risk rocks, really. And then when you go to underwrite, then we're looking for, okay, a big thing we look at is break-even occupancy. And this is something that Ray Alcorn introduced me to. He lives in Blacksburg, Virginia. I live in Richmond. And I'm sure it's been out there before, but he had a fantastic book on it. And it basically is how vacant can the building be and still make money? And we basically sensitivity test all of our assets going in, and we've got to be able to buy a deal that can take double market vacancy for a year and still make money. So if market vacancy seven, double that is 14, we have to have a break-even occupancy of 86%, meaning the building could be 14% vacant for a year and we still make money. And all the markets we're in have never hit a double market vacancy event historically in the largest real estate downturn since the Great Depression was 08, 09. So it's a great safety metric that served as well. In terms of as it relates to that break-even occupancy, if you are in a market that unfortunately does dip significantly to double market vacancy, so once in hopefully a lifetime, or hopefully never, but if it happens once in a lifetime, it happens would the approach be to lower rents and give concessions to keep the occupancy high? Or would you let the vacancy take place and keep the rents for the current unit at their rate? That's a great question. It depends. First of all, the LRO, and this is a benefit of doing it, it will be sensitive to a concessionary market. It'll be sensitive to flattening rents. It will be sensitive to declining rents. So you're going to get some good feedback on that. We generally believe that just from an underwriting perspective, and we're, I think we're preferred with Freddie and Fannie. We've got $220 million of debt with them in our history. They're going to get nervous if you dip below 92% occupancy. But if you've got rents, it's still, they want to have that current flow. So I think your lender community and your investor community, because occupancy in your hold period, occupancy is going to make you more cash flow. But when you're going to sell, it's going to be your average rental rate and market occupancy. Some people think, hey, I've got a 97% occupancy building. You don't get valuation on that when you sell it. You get valuation on market occupancy and whatever your lease rate is on your rent roll. So if you're holding, optimize for occupancy. If you're looking to move the asset, you're optimizing for rental rate. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Bring it. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. Want to build wealth through real estate but tired of dealing with tenants, termites, and toilets? Check out the Note Investing Academy. They'll teach you how to invest in the mortgage instead of the property. With all the cash flow or appreciation you want, and investing as actively or passively as you'd like. 
Use the code FAIRLESS at noteinvestingacademy.com for $500 off enrollment. Best ever book you've read? The Goal, Eli Goldratt. Best ever deal you've done? We bought a deal in Louisville, Kentucky that was then had a 1031 component from a deal in College Station that we then bought another deal in Dallas, Texas, and we were able to jump cash flow for the client by 25% on each level. It was a fantastic deal and a series of deals that we cascaded through. Over what period of time? Six years. Do you remember roughly the purchase prices of each of those three, just so we can get a visualization? Sure. The first deal was $4.3 million. The second deal was $10.5 million. It sold for fourteen point six in only two and a half years. And then the other one was $26 million. And then is that at a current property or did you exit out? No, it's a current property. It's probably worth high 20s, low 30s right now. We've had it for two years, two and a half years. What's the mistake you've made on a transaction? I bought a deal that was uh, 1978 and had asbestos that we wanted to do washers and dryers in the deal. And we couldn't without a massive renovation budget because of the remediation costs. It was still profitable, but it dinged our ability to grow rents at a faster pace. So that's one. Best ever way you like to give back? Kids' causes. We give a lot to the Children's Museum, our Children's Hospital here in Richmond, as well as Feed More, which does a lot for child hunger in Virginia. So we're very kid and local the way we run it. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing? 37parallel.com is our website. And then we have a booklet called uh, Evidence-Based Investing. It's basically how we came to believe this to be a solid space. So if you go to 37parallel.com slash best real estate, people can get their hands on that. Chad, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for talking about your approach, why you're focused on class B properties, pros and cons on that as well as the type of investment group that you all are and what your philosophy is. Some tactical things that can be helpful like the different LRO that you discussed as well as scaling the company for any apartment investors who are looking to scale their apartment investing business. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Want to build wealth through real estate but tired of dealing with tenants, termites, and toilets? check out the Note Investing Academy. They'll teach you how to invest in the mortgage instead of the property. With all the cash flow or appreciation you want and investing as actively or passively as you'd like. Use the code FAIRLESS at noteinvestingacademy.com for $500 off enrollment.